As a consequence of social and economic responses to the coronavirus, many youth are facing an uncertain future. It has become more challenging to access schooling and employment, and the power of friendship and peer support can be diminished by social distancing requirements. As we look ahead to rebuilding society, what do we have to consider to open up new opportunities for young people to take their place and contribute constructively to making a better world? How can young people support each other to navigate this new environment? How can they overcome the obstacles in their path? You are listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. This episode is part of the mini-series Rebuilding Together, where we reflect on the principles that can help us to build a post-pandemic society. This conversation features Delara Merfanian talking with Tanika McLeod, a young entrepreneur, and Ashraf Rushdi, who works with the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity. They discuss how young people are adapting to the conditions created by this health crisis and the ways in which they can help to lead processes of social transformation. I'm delighted to explore these questions today with Tanika McLeod and Ashraf Rushdi on what is now the fifth episode of our new series, Rebuilding Together. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Ashraf, you have been a host of this podcast in the past, but Tanika, this is your first time uh, joining us. So perhaps I can ask you both to introduce yourselves. If I can start with Tanika, please. Sure, yeah. So I'm Tanika McLeod. I am uh, a recent graduate of York University. I did my my BA um, and MA at York. And um, since I have worked in nonprofit um, evaluation, program design and development, uh, and I've also started a, a tech startup um, about a year ago with my brother and a couple of other people. And since then, I've just been really focusing on entrepreneurial work. I've since um, been working as a freelance evaluator for nonprofits and uh, a CEO of this tech startup. Wonderful. Thank you. And Ashraf? Yeah, my name is Ashraf Rishti. I uh, live in Toronto and I have served for several years with the Office of Public Affairs uh, of the Baha'i Community of Canada that's hosting this podcast. And right now do a lot of work with the Institute for Studies in Global Prosperity, um, which organizes uh, educational activities and research activities around the world. And I work a lot with the programs in, in Canada that support university students. Great. Uh, it's really lovely to have you both here today. I'm excited uh, to navigate this, some of the questions with you. Um, Tanika, you have worked in the field of youth employment, as you just mentioned, and you are now involved in entrepreneurship. So how do you think young people are facing this current crisis and what qualities are helping them to navigate it? Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, in my experience, being a young person, working with programs who support young people, uh, working with my peers and colleagues, I think that the gravity of the situation varies depending on, you know, social locations. Um, and I find that 
individuals like myself who are young and racialized are experiencing the brunt of uh, some of the consequences of this um, pandemic and um, as well as the social unrest um, that we've seen in the U.S. particularly, but here in Canada and around the world, calls for racial justice have been, you know, exhilarating and motivating on one hand, but also kind of disillusioning that we have to still, you know, bring our bodies outside uh, and sort of on the line for something that we expect to be a universal right. And so seeing so many of us out there um, can be really motivating, but also, like I said, just a little bit uh, disappointing. And so I think that the qualities that young people have that will help us to overcome these challenges are um, very innate in many younger generations. And I think all generations have experienced these kinds of um, qualities like resilience, um, like ingenuity. And I think that this is something that we've seen a lot in millennials and Gen Zs, not to say that, you know, Gen Xers are not those qualities or don't exhibit those qualities, but we've seen a lot of um, creativity coming from uh, young people, especially now, especially in the way that we've seen these social movements take place. And I think that that ingenuity, creativity, that kind of um, drive to overcome challenges will be what uh, helps young people really overcome the current situation, as well as create new futures and new possibilities for the way that young people shape the community that they're in. And so that's where for me um, and my family, entrepreneurship has played a really big part in filling that void because we have these skill sets. We've been trained in a particular field. We have experiences, uh, lived and professional, but nowhere to really channel that. And so what you're kind of left with is yourself and your great ideas and a desire to, to bring them to light. And so I think a lot of young people are maybe in that space right now. They've been given time and space to really think about things in a different way because of the pandemic. We've seen that entire nations can absolutely change the way that they move and the way that they do things on a dime. Um, we just need to commit to that. And so I think that's something that young people will sort of bring to the fore in the, in the next few years is just um, a wave of really creative entrepreneurship in, in a whole host of different ways. And uh, hopefully that'll, you know, bring a lot of hope out of this uh, really tragic time. You touched on very important qualities that we've also talked about in general terms during our podcast episodes in the past. And, you know, the main reason why we started this was talking about resilience, which is one of the qualities that you also mentioned. But in a bigger context, there's so much more, uh, as you mentioned. And I think also the education part is, is, is one of the, you know, the, the places where the, the youth need a lot of the support, obviously, coming into it and out of it, as you mentioned, with employment. And there's there's a whole set of support systems and networks that need to be in place to support youth and in that capacity. So thinking of that, it, it makes me think of my next question for Ashraf, because I know you've been working with a variety of, you know, youth and educational initiatives for a number of years. And so what kind of support do young people need at this time, do you think? And what are the particular needs of this population? Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, already, I think Tanika has touched on a lot of these things that, that I think are important to bring to the fore in this kind of conversation. And, and some of those that really strike me are, you know, there's very clearly a disruption happening 
and has been happening for quite a long time in the in the past few decades to the to the degree in kind of every dimension of life that it becomes very difficult for young people in general i think for our whole society but for young people specifically to determine like what is my vision of a future what role am i going to be able to play in this uh, society that i live in and and even what's the path to get to that vision like both of those things i think are uh, deeply in question right now. And so when I think about youth and the needs and support that youth need, I think, I mean, I want to bring up this thing that Tanika said about how a lot of this will vary based on social location. But in general, I think we can say that uh, youth need an opportunity to reflect on this time and what it is that's actually happening in our society and an opportunity to do that together um, with each other you know, and with their communities. Like, I think that really youth need a place where their voices are heard and they're able to participate in a conversation about the kind of future that they want to see in their community. Because I think when we look to youth, when we think about supporting young people, we really, like, are struck again and again by the capacities of young people. So when we think about what we need to do to support young people, I think a lot of those supports look like enabling they look like channeling. They look like strengthening um, what it is that young people are already striving to do. You know, so I think that those are some of the main kind of things that I would touch on. When we get more specific, we get to things like um, unemployment or meaningful work. I also like that term <laughs> you brought up. That like, you know, what what kind of what kind of work actually am I seeking? And it may be that actually, and I think the more you know, that you speak to young people, the more you see that actually there isn't that much of an interest in a lot of the kinds of work that are available in the society around them. That actually there's this kind of push uh, desire to see a new kind of life that that they could live in a, you know, integrating all of the ideas that are spreading and circulating amongst uh, a lot of the young people, at least that I'm in touch with. So I think that one of the ways to support youth is also to help to enable the realization of that best possible future and, you know, and to shape it, to, to give that, yeah, to give volume to that voice, basically, in our society. Hmm. Volume to the voice. I love that. <laughs> Building on those, those comments that you made, um, you know, this crisis has exposed certain, as you mentioned, the, you know, structural issues in our society that are preventing youth from advancing so, Tanika, you know, what kinds of structural changes do you think we need to talk about in terms of allowing young people to play a role in contributing to the betterment of their communities, just as Ashraf was mentioning? Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess my first response would be, how much time do you have? Because <laughs> I think the list is long. I think we're overdue on structural change. I think that structural change has, for some reason, developed a kind of negative connotation um, over the years outside of social justice circles. Uh, and so I think in terms of structural changes, we really need to change the way that we are preparing young people for life and how we're describing what life is meant to be. It shouldn't be that you are intending to just work a nine to five job so you can pay your bills and then retire at 65. I just completely disagree with that kind of logic. I think it should really be about chasing what makes you happy in a way that is sustainable and safe and responsible. 
Um, and, and that right now isn't really being promoted. And so I find that there are a lot of young people around my age who are just finishing their degrees and feeling a kind of crisis. Even my friends who have gotten into law school, some of them, they're finishing now and they're like, I don't know if I want to work at this firm. You know, and I just got these really expensive degrees. So I feel like I need to work at a firm. I need to practice law. But honestly, I don't know if that's for me. And so I think that what might help um, to really amplify those voices of young people is to fundamentally change the way that we prepare them for life, right? So that it's less about you need to fix yourself for the labor market and more about what innate qualities do you have that could actually benefit society writ large. And that is what we're working towards, not so much creating these, you know, in a capitalistic sense, well-trained laborers. That's not who we are. And I think many generations have been fighting against that idea. And I think that, you know, young people, again, um, with entrepreneurship being such a robust sector right now, it's looking more like an option than, you know, say that nine to five. And, and we really as a society need to listen to that and sort of shape ourselves around that, starting with education. Thank you. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In, in, in all movements in, all, in our society, we need, we need to have this in mind. And, um, you know, one of the other things you touched upon earlier was about, you know, these social movements that we've had lately uh, related to racial justice and equality. So, Ashraf, I wanted to touch a little bit more on that and ask you, we have seen young people, you know, at the forefront of these social movements that have been emerging in the last few months. And so how do you think this energy and vitality that, you know, we were just discussing with Tanika as well can be channeled into enduring social transformation? Because ultimately, this is what we, you know, as we talk about the change that we want to create in our society from the purpose of what we go into to, you know, the, the results that we're able to to see in our society from our own actions. How How do you see that? I think that... That one thing that comes to mind, which was also mentioned earlier, is this idea of hope. And I think that youth need enduring sources of hope in order to continually channel uh, energy and vitality into uh, something as large as, as wanting to see a social transformation, a structural, permanent structural change in the society that the, that we live in. And I think that, um, you know, we can see that every every generation has causes that they champion and some of those causes need to be need sustained championing from generation to generation need an entire society behind them before um before movement can really happen to the degree that uh that our consciousness rises basically our consciousness increases and we notice more and more change that's required in order to uh, in order to realize an ideal and i think like tanika was saying we can see how in the face of a crisis like the coronavirus whole sectors are ground to a halt something that actually in the imagination of people before this crisis was impossible like there's no way that things the way they are could stop. And I think now that we've seen that they can stop, that should also be, you know, like a lesson for youth, like a, a recognition, not just for youth, but for our, our whole society, that with enough will, you know, with a, enough of a recognition of uh, basically the depth of the issue, the consequences 
of a social ill like racism on our entire society, that it should begin to motivate this kind of uh, drastic action. But I think that uh, the, that kind of consciousness building, you know, much as things have been promoted on social media, much as things have been shared in the news, that we can also tell from the tenor of the emerging conversation that it's been mostly just uh, swept up into the very like us and them polarizing kind of uh, setting that our that our national media is gripped by. And so, you know, to see where that conversation actually advances, I think youth need to really speak to those around them in their community. If one is continually serving one's community and sees change at that level, which is actually, you know, it's like a, a laboratory. It's like a level at which it's possible to actually learn how to build these environments of unity then I think that that will be the best place. If you want to build a, a society that, that recognizes um, the oneness of mankind, then we have to labor for that, probably for the rest of our lives, and also expect that it will be several generations worth of effort for us to move towards some th- a goal that even now we can see, but we can't, uh, you know, we don't see it instantiated everywhere, but we can actually see that ideal with a lot more clarity than I think we could you know, 50 or 100 years ago. This makes me think of the fact that, you know, just as you mentioned, within history, we've always seen that youth can move the world, truly, when they when they get together with that energy and vitality. But uh, as you mentioned, I think wanting to give all the structures and um, and opportunities for them to perhaps even just be able to use that in within their their own communities and neighborhoods, like you said, and have that grassroots change um, and, and learning and experience would be a, a very big step towards um, some of these, these other changes that we've talked about, not to be redundant. But that brings me to also, you know, because we've been talking about how young people can become these protagonists of change, as I mentioned at the beginning, and this can be in their communities, obviously, youth also need mentorship and support. Um, So, Tanika, what kind of mentorship do young people need to contribute constructively to their communities? I mean, Ashraf just touched on that a little bit, but... And what do you think about that? And what do you think is the role of intergenerational relationships in this process? Yeah. So, I mean, everything that Ashraf said, I, you know, resonate with so, so deeply because I think, yeah, young people, those who are, you know, um, critically conscious and, and active are trying to cultivate transformation at the local level and not really, you know, seeing the supports or really knowing how um, social media is the most readily available tool, but not always the most effective. As Ashraf was saying, I, I totally agree. It's it's what needs to happen is this kind of local, smaller, um, sort of micro activism or, or push for transformation. And so just speaking in, in my experience, especially even with our, our health tech startup, um, a lot of the reason why we, we started that was for a social purpose. Um, we founded this startup over a year ago and we never would have imagined that coronavirus would essentially dominate the world right now. And, and so for us at the time, it was about recognizing 
uh, a problem or a, a gap in our health system in Canada and, and desiring to improve that for people who, like us, maybe have experienced or have been a part of uh, healthcare in some way in, in a long-term capacity and have been disappointed by that experience. Um, since then, this desire has really blossomed into a whole host of social initiatives, one of which being to show young people as well as others that um, there are other ways you can start and run a corporation that don't require or depend on the hyper-exploitation of human beings, natural resources, uh, etc. Uh, and so for us, that has been an area where we have tried to um, evoke some kind of transformation. But at the same time, we don't really see too much meaningful mentorship in this area. Uh, it's challenging. And, and surely the experience is different for, for many people. But if I could speak specifically to entrepreneurship and the tech industry, especially for racialized founders, um, there's a lot of talk right now about wanting to support and fund uh, Black and racialized founders. But on the ground, it's really hard to firstly access these funds uh, and secondly, find people who are willing to commit themselves to your very, very early startup project and, and give you meaningful support. Um, and so what I think meaningful mentorship is, and Ashraf has, has talked about this a lot, is a kind of allyship, a kind of partnership wherein uh, collectively you determine what are the goals that you know, these young people are trying to achieve and then support them alongside of them in, in achieving those goals. Um, so I think that the purpose really needs to change and be less about the program or the activity or the initiative that the mentorship is under and more about the individuals themselves and just really meeting them where they're at uh, and, and supporting them in leading their own futures. How do you think what you mentioned is linked to this intergenerational relationship as well? You know, do we always assume that maybe the mentor will be someone who's older and more experienced than, you know, or, or even from other, you know, generations within the, the society? How does that play a role? It's interesting because in my experience, I have had and participated in more peer-to-peer similar generational mentorship than I have intergenerational. Though I would love to have more intergenerational mentorship. I, need to, I think it needs to be a combination of both. I think that young people should be supported in supporting other young people. Um, I have colleagues and friends from my undergrad who we still stay connected and support one another through whatever it is that we're you know, experiencing in life, professionally, otherwise. But intergenerational mentorship can be extremely valuable in that, you know, there are life experiences that fundamentally shape the way that you understand the world. And sometimes it just takes a bit of time to get there. Well, I have to say that I, I'm sure many youth will feel inspired, hopefully listening to everything that you have shared, the, you know, the things that you're going through. And I'm inspired to know that you're you're viewing things in this way and experiencing in that way and that you could also, you know, look at mentorship in this different way, which could be more like accompaniment, like, you know, really being there for someone and walking hand in hand and learning together, not necessarily only, you know, being a teacher and a student, but learning together and walking together because truly we're all still learning and experiencing all these new conditions that 
that you touched upon. And I feel like it's sort of like when we have an ecosystem, right? All these conditions come up and it affects us all in different ways, but we all together can help it overcome it and thrive again. So it really is a, a collective uh, endeavor. And I don't know if there are any other reflections that either of you would like to share as we're reaching the end of our conversation today, but I know there is so much more we could talk about. So if there's any other reflections you would like to leave with us today, be free. Yes, Ashraf. Yeah, I, just from the comments that Tanika was making just now, I think that uh, one thing that really struck me is in in one of the programs that I'm uh, working with, with uh, university students, there's this opportunity for them to reflect on their perspective on history. And I think that, you know, it's one of those things you were saying is a benefit of, of intergenerational me mentorship. And that's kind of like one-to-one, -one, depending on the mentor, you're going to get a window into like a certain perspective on the development in a community or something like that. But just taking that and blowing it up all the way is, you know, it's sort of saying like our culture also operates in a sort of ahistorical mode. It tends to forget the past. And I'm, I've been to so many conferences where everyone can diagnose the problems, but rarely is there a vision for the future that's put forward, you know, so we kind of see ourselves as actually just being in this little condition. And, uh, and we experience most of the world as a series of events. The global pandemic is an event, rather than being able to view the world, which I think, you know, I see in these materials, a lot of uh, the change that uh, it encourages in the thinking in the youth is to be able to view uh, their lives and what's happened in the past and in the future as parts of these larger processes. Being able to view, um, you know, it, which I, I think kind of comes back to those er earlier comments about um, how it is that youth can kind of sustain hope. Like another way is to be able to see what I'm doing as part of a process and what I'm contributing to as part of a process that's been ongoing before me and will continue after me. And I'm doing one part in it now and, uh, and you know, on the constructive side. And so the more that I think youth can gain that kind of perspective, the more I think it opens doors to, you know, channeling their energies in a way that they won't look back and feel like it was wasted. You know, because that's another thing that that youth can also learn by looking at older generations. Just, you know, this thing of uh, of the history again is just, you know, when we look at people who are at the end of life, some look back with pride and joy and happiness at their accomplishments and others look back with sincere regret over the kinds of things that they didn't do. And I think that it would represent the kind of maturity that I think we need for young people to be able to look at their life in the moment from a perspective of a whole life lived. Yeah, I have to agree with Ashraf on so much of that because uh, especially the importance of history. And as you mentioned, it's, it's a lot of work to sort of re-educate ourselves on our history. And I think that, you know, part of it Part of the issue here is, yeah, supporting young people and encouraging young people to learn that history on their own. And then the other side of it is encouraging our political leaders to support these institutions and in changing so that they are intended to do that. So that youth and young people don't need to re-educate themselves on what our history is, right? And so I would say take some, take a bit of time out of that Netflix, out of that social media time to really learn and, and relearn what has gotten us to this point. What 
social relations were like 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago? How have they developed? How have they changed? Um, our civil rights movement, it feels like, has this kind of erasure in, in our society, especially in younger generations. Like really, what were the principles? Who were the leaders? What did they write about? What did they care about? Are we just repeating a lot of the same arguments? Are we innovating upon them? Um, and so what worked in that time and what didn't work in that time so that we don't have to keep making these same sort of mistakes or, you know, even if the arguments and the methods of that activism was great and effective and could still be today, we also still need to change our approach because we, as we've seen, there was a limit to that effectiveness, right? Um, we still experience and perhaps in, in ways more intense than the years shortly after the civil rights movement, we still experience racial and other kinds of inequity. And so we know there's a limit to that and we've got to change our ways. And so learning our history can really help with that. But again, I, I understand that there are structural limitations to what we can and can't expect of young people. And so uh, on the one hand, supporting them is our prerogative. But on the other hand, and perhaps um, even more so, should be to turn our attention to those who actually have the means to change our institutions. Uh, fundamentally is, is also part of it, part of our work. Thank you both for such a meaningful conversation and all your thoughts and, and sharing your experiences and your reflections, the, the things you have learned along the way. Thank you so much again for your time today. It has been wonderful to have you here on The Public Discourse. Thank you for having us. Thank you. You have been listening to The Public Discourse, a podcast by the Baha'i Community of Canada's Office of Public Affairs. You can learn more about the Baha'i Faith at baha'i.ca and follow the work of our office at opa.baha'i.ca where you will find links to our social media handles on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.